Welcome to Calling Us to Life, a podcast by Queen's Park Baptist Church in Glasgow. Please enjoy our catch-up on this week's sermon and join us later in the week on the podcast where we take a deeper dive into this week's talk. Enjoy. So Lord, we pray that you would just descend upon us afresh by your Spirit, that you would reinvigorate where the embers have burned low, where you would spark new life, where there has been coldness and darkness before. Lord, we come and we look to you because in you are all the treasures of life. Would you come just as we gather? We thank you for the encouragement that we have seen and heard, and we pray, Lord, that you continue to work within us to bring us life and wholeness in Jesus. Amen. Amen. I was going to say take a seat, but you've obviously already done that. (laughs) Um, Good morning from me. What a morning. Hasn't it been amazing? And uh, it's so fantastic just to hear something of um, Agnes's story. And I was was really chuffed. I didn't know what she was going to choose. I was really chuffed that she picked, this is my story, because it is a lifelong story, and I want to talk about story this morning, something I prepared earlier before I knew what Agnes was going to say. And what, in a sense, the kind of title for what I'm now going to say is that God takes our biographies and he turns them into his testimonies. God takes our stories and he makes them his story, full of life and hope and purpose and truth. I don't know about you, but I love a good story. I think everyone loves a story. But the best stories of all are stories of God taking an ordinary human life and turning it round by the power of his death and resurrection and filling that life with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, those kind of stories, they might not make the best sellers list, but it's testimony to what God does in all of our lives in all sorts of places, even bringing our stories to a crowning glory. I think as we've seen today in the story of that one life, Agnes's life, as crowning glory in God at work. I wanna show you a couple of pictures. Can we do that? Yes. Now, I want to show you two pictures. The one on the, ah, yeah, I want to show you two pictures. Hold the pictures just for a moment. I want to tell you about a man called D.P. Thompson. Some of you may have heard of D.P. as he was known. He was described as Scotland's evangelist. He was an energetic and an innovative leader in the Church of Scotland in the 20th century. If you've heard of house-to-house visitation for evangelism, D.P. Thompson introduced it. If you've heard of summer missions, D.P. Thompson introduced it. If you've heard of Tell Scotland and the Billy Graham Crusade in the 1950s, D.P. Thompson was at the heart of it. He was a prolific leader and evangelist in the first half, really, of the 20th century. And he was also a prolific writer and publisher. He wrote in his life two major biographies. One, the man on the right, was the biography of Eric Little. 
It was called Scotland's Greatest Athlete. Now, you know that story. You've seen the Oscar-winning film that came as a consequence of that amazing, dramatic, and wonderful life. The second is lesser known. His other biography was called David Cowan, Man and Minister. You've never heard of David Cowan, but I have because he was my great uncle. And he introduces this book by saying this. David was not widely known. He was not an outstanding preacher. Now you know where I get it from. He was not an outstanding preacher, leader, or scholar. He started no new movements. He electrified no national gatherings. This is a great beginning to a biography, isn't it? But he served the church he loved with a fidelity that means more than words and left a fragrant memory in the hearts of those who knew and loved him best. He lived a life handed over to Jesus, a life in many ways that was embedded in the ordinary life of people in uh, Glasgow and Aberdeenshire and Perthshire, a life that is not remembered apart from this biography. And I want to suggest, no offense intended, but for most of us, there will be no biography of our lives written, apart from the story that God does through us in the lives of those around us. A life handed over to Jesus becomes a testimony of the power of Jesus rather than a biography. So I want to tell you a story, a story that Jesus tells. It's a story that shows and tells how our lives can be transformed when we let Jesus write the story of our lives. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 10. This will be a familiar story to you, but I want just to, to read it um, so that we fix it in our minds. Luke chapter 10, and uh, you'll know this as the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man 
who fell into the hands of the robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Well, this is a powerful story. Arguably, this is one of the most influential stories in all of history. We live, in, even in these days, in a good Samaritan culture. People, whether they are atheists or Christian believers, are in our society concerned for the poor. They're concerned for the marginalized. They're concerned for the weak. And many historians and observers of human societies around the world recognize that that concern for the weak and the marginalized does not come hardwired into our brains. Many cultures over history and in different parts of the world have favored the strong over the weak. They have exploited the marginalized for the sake of the benefit of the powerful. Even the Greek and Roman powers of Jesus' day uh, were communities and cultures who tried to exploit and to eliminate the weak and the powerless. But this parable is powerful. It has shaped our whole society for the good. It's a powerful story. But I also want to speak of this this morning as a personal story. So think about this for a moment. The story begins with a question. It's a lawyer's question. So think about Jason Leach at the inquiry into COVID this week, quivering before the King's Council. Though he doesn't quiver, I know Jason. Um, Here is the question. A lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a great question, isn't it? It's a question we should all be asking. It's a question which says, what am I here for? Is there life beyond the grave? Is there something more mystical about this world, more sacred than what I can measure and see? It's a great question. It's also a vital question because you probably noticed you only have a certain amount of years to work through this question and to get an answer before you're faced with reality. We human beings throughout our lives are hungry for an answer to the question of why we're here. What are we for? Is there a God? But I want to suggest there's also a bit of a flaw, a flaw in this question. The lawyer says, what can I do? That's how he expresses it. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Or in other words, what work can I achieve that will bring the reward of spiritual life? What can I do to make a connection with God? And Jesus' answer is basically this, nothing. It's too hard. In verse 27, Jesus gives the man an impossible task. He says, this is the bar for relationship with God. Verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And if that's not hard enough, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love God perfectly, not just with an external expression, but with internal devotion, wholehearted, whole time, without flaw. And love your neighbor completely. And just to make the point, Jesus kind of extends the concept of neighbor to the people that don't like you. So, here's the thing. Have you loved perfectly someone you think to be morally dodgy, racially different, and politically opposed? Well, I haven't. I'm not even sure what that looks like. And if spiritual virtuosity and moral perfection are required, then can I just say, I have fallen off the wagon multiple times this week, and I suspect you have too. And really just to make the point, we hear the man asking about inheritance. How do, what do you do to get an inheritance? Well, most of us know that there's nothing you can do to get an inheritance. I mean, you might want to suck it up to somebody who's dying, but that doesn't guarantee you're going to get inheritance, does it? So, inheritance, spiritual inheritance, is not something we can earn, but something we can only receive as it's given by a generous donor. So, here's the question. How do I become the kind of person who receives the mercy of God? How do I place myself in a position where I can experience the goodness of God and inherit his eternal life? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. So, what I'd like to do is to look at this parable and to see how Jesus, in one way, answers that question. What we do to encounter and to experience eternal life. Now, many of you know this parable. You know it inside out. You know it back to front. You know it upside down. Except I'm going to do it upside down in a way you've probably never heard this parable before. People will say to you that if you want to understand a Bible story, one of the things that you can do is to put yourself in the story. That's a really helpful thing to do. And so when you're reading about Mary and Martha, which comes later on in this passage, you might just want to think to yourself or speak to God and say, what am I? Am I Mary or am I Martha in the story this week? Or am I Peter denying Jesus? Or am I Thomas doubting? Or am I a disciple who needs to choose to follow Jesus? You know the kind of thing. It's a really helpful way. But when we read the story, we preachers normally ask, what are you? Are you the priest? Are you the Levite or the Samaritan? But today, I want to flip that on its head. And I want to ask you to think about something. What if Jesus in this parable is suggesting that you and I and the lawyer who asks the question are not the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, but we're actually the guy lying bleeding at the side of the road. Put yourself in that position. Here is a man who is in need of help and healing. So let's think about that for a moment. Let's think about the man by the side of the road. That's how the story begins, after all. It begins with a man who's in a critical condition. He's been beaten up. All his means and money and anything that he would have to help himself have gone. He is beyond his own help. And then a priest and a Levite walk past him. 
without helping. And why do they do that? Have they no compassion? They probably have lots of compassion, but they have come from the temple. They serve in the temple, and very likely they want to maintain their spiritual and religious purity. So they don't want to touch anything that's going to contaminate them, particularly contaminate them spiritually. So they are perceiving this guy not only as bleeding out in the gutter, but also a, a, a source of spiritual contamination. So he's not well physically, and they've kind of already written him off spiritually. So here's the thing. Jesus may be suggesting to you and I that we're not the well-to-do, can-do people who are simply there to be benefactors of others. Parable certainly challenges us to do that. But think about, about it like this. What if Jesus is telling me and you and this upright lawyer that actually we are in spiritual need? We're wretched, we're poor, we're blind and naked, and we're helpless to help ourselves. In fact, you and I are so far from eternal life that we are unable to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We need help. We need intervention. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to ask for help. I find it really hard to imagine sometimes that I'm totally incapable, even when I'm being incapable and stupid. And most of us are like that. In this society, when we think we're not quite right, we go on a course, we do a bit of self-care, a bit of mindfulness here and there, and we think, well, that'll sort things out. But even when we do those things, every now and then, that kind of internal bleeding breaks through. And the Scripture informs us that our human condition is one that fundamentally separates us spiritually from God, from others, and even from our own true selves. We're lying bleeding, dying at the side of the road, and we need help to use the image of this story. But here's the thing. The joy and the hope of the gospel is that when we admit that we're in a mess, when we recognize where we are, we put ourselves in a place where we can experience forgiveness and hope and life. And that's often why people who are struggling with addiction, who are at the end of their tether, are the first to find Jesus because they understand the reality of their situation and they know they need to cry out for help. So this message is a message of hope for every one of us, that we are people for whom Jesus died to provide a way to life. And when we admit our needs, we find his life. Martin Luther, the German reformer, put this just beautifully. So I want just to read this to you. I think we might even have this on a, a slide. Yeah, we do. That's great. He says, God accepts only the forsaken. He cures only the sick. He gives sight only to the blind. He restores life to only the dead. He sanctifies only sinners, gives wisdom only to unwise fools. In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those who are not in grace. Therefore, no proud saint, no wise or just person 
can become God's material and God's purpose can't be fulfilled in him. We need to express and admit our need of help. Now, you may be in a position where this is the first time you've ever been in an environment like this and it's really strange. Um, But I just want to encourage you to think about that and to think about where you stand in relation to God and that desire, that God-shaped desire that we have to connect. How do I connect? God says first admit that that relationship does not exist and begin to look and to ask him. You might even want to begin by praying, Lord, just show me if you're there. Lots of people have done that and discovered that God has answered that prayer in a powerful and amazing way. But also there are many of us here who have welcomed Jesus into our lives. We've said, help, come, forgive me, renew me, put me right with God. And for us, when you've kind of been down the road and lived the story for a bit of time, it's really hard to admit that you have a need. After all, do you know, when you've been a Christian for a while, you should be somebody who has all the answers, shouldn't you? Well, maybe one or two of us. And it's really hard to actually admit that we need God to help us. Brenny Brown is a well-known um, speaker and writer. And she says in her book, um, The Gift of Imperfection, that there's something liberating in admitting our imperfection. It opens us up to grace. And that's so true. When we admit that we are imperfect, it opens up the opportunity for God to work within us and for us to learn. I mean, you know what it's like, don't you? That person who always knows the right answer to everything but will never learn, gets stuck in a place of pride and never learns the lesson. In order to grow and learn, we need to admit that we need more. The man was lying by the side of the road. Now, here's a bit of a kicker. Help turns up. But the help that turns up is the man's enemy. And I may just want to throw that out to us today. What would you do if the person who is helping you or the person that you are welcoming to assist you is your enemy? That's really hard to take on board. And for this story, we are being told that God can turn up in our lives in the most strange ways, in the most strange and bizarre people. So the man is lying by the side of the road, but he discovers a surprising rescuer, Samaritan, the surprising rescuer. That's the next slide. Fantastic. So here is this unexpected, bizarre helper, a man who breaks his routine. He crosses cultural divides, political boundaries, even spiritual resistance to rescue and restore the man. Now, let me put this in a bit of context. It's kind of a rough modernization. But this is a bit like an Orthodox Jewish settler in the 21st century who gets beaten up in the West Bank being helped by a Palestinian from Gaza. That's the kind of story that's going on here. So we actually might want to call this the story of the good Palestinian. And who is, so who is this 
Samaritan, who is this one who helps? Well, let's look at it a little bit. He's one who comes at great cost to help the man in need. He's one who lifts him up, who heals him, who provides for him, and sticks with him through his journey of recovery. He's one who breaks the walls, even that wall of spiritual contamination that seems to have restrained the, the, Samar- the, the Levite and the priest. He crosses the barrier of, of hospitality. He spends time with somebody who is from a different race and, and culture and whose background is unknown to him. He comes and he meets somebody who is bleeding and dying, who is the prospect of, of whose life is, is death. And he comes and administers healing and he carries them off to bring recovery. So here's the thought. If I'm the man lying by the side of the road, Jesus is the good Samaritan. He is the one who on the cross, as we sung earlier on, takes responsibility for our injury. He comes to our aid. He goes out into hostile territory, into a world where he is despised, rejected, and crucified. And even in that environment, he seeks people out and he finds us. He pays the cost for our predicament. He judges the wickedness of sin. He takes it on. He exchanges our failures for his perfection. He puts us right with God. He acquits our soul. He pardons us. The past is finished and new things begin. And that barrier that segregates us off from God is broken down and we walk into life in him. He gives us new life, new creation life, resurrection life, free from the tyranny of the past and of sin and of temptation. He puts us into union with himself in Christ in whom are all the riches of God's glory. He rescues us. It's what he comes to do. And when we respond in faith, when we place our trust in him, just as this broken man did for the one who came to help, so he lifts us up and carries us into a whole new life where we serve a new master, we belong to a new family, we have a new future, we live a new story. For the man in this parable, his biography wasn't looking pretty good. It was looking like an ending rather than a new beginning. But with the entry of this one who came to help, his biography becomes a testimony. It's a testimony that we read today and that thousands and millions of people have read throughout the world. An unknown man, an ordinary man, a nameless man has become a testimony of the work of God in our world. And just as his story has now become part of our story and the story of Jesus, so God calls us to bring our biographies, our stories, and to allow Christ to weave them into his amazing story. That's Jesus' answer to the lawyer. What can I do to enter this life eternal, to inherit the life of the the kingdom of God? Do you know what? What can you do? Precious little. 
apart from receiving and welcoming the assistance of God in Jesus, to put our lives by faith in the hand of Jesus. And I want to encourage you to do that today, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time, to place our lives in his hands so that he might give us a new story, so that he might reshape the plot of our lives, so that he might enter into our biographies and make them powerful for him. In order to do that, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray two ways. I'm going to pray for those of us for whom this might be the very first time we've ever done it. And then I'm going to pray for those of us for whom God has maybe been speaking afresh today and who need to respond uh, personally. So let, let's just pray for a moment. And so for, for some of us, if this is the very first time you've done this, it might feel a little bit strange, but can I just invite you maybe just to echo in your mind the words that I'm going to just say in a moment or two and make my words your words. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I don't have that relationship, intimate and spiritual, with God. I don't know what it is to live this eternal life, but it's something I want to know and to experience. So Lord, I thank you that you have come to my assistance, that you have broken through heaven and earth so that I might come to know you. Thank you that because you died on the cross, you have removed every and any barrier to that relationship. And so I place my faith, my trust in you this day. I ask that you would show yourself to me. I would get to know you. And I want to ask that you would make my story your story, that I would be caught up in what you're doing and that when people see me, they see you at work. Lord Jesus, come into my life and make me a new person in you. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you have prayed that prayer, um, I have a little book I'd just love to give you um, this morning. I have a bunch of copies. Just come and speak to me or Brody, and we'd just love to give that uh, to you. I want also, just if I can, to pray for, uh, for others of us uh, this morning. So let's continue just to, to do that. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you that you come to us. You come in order to deposit in our lives what we need, not just once, but every day in life. You come to relight that fire. You come to restore our souls. You come to, to cleanse and to cut off the things that, that cling to us and inhibit us from following you wholeheartedly. So Lord, we come and we ask that you would just reignite within us that burning fire of passion for you, that you'd come and reignite in us hope and expectation that you are at work. We ask that you would come and reignite within us 
uh, an intimacy, a freshness, and a closeness of relationship with Jesus. And so, Lord, we, we come to you, and we ask again that you would engage in our stories, that you would shift and nudge and challenge and push our stories in the direction of your love and of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.